You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 317, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Education for Special Needs, the Curative Education Course, 12 Lectures, translated by Anna Moise. This is Lecture 8, given in Dornach on the 3rd of July, 1924. Dear friends, let me start by showing you the boy's drawings. He has done good things. He has the ability to take these things, and quite powerfully. Here, in particular, you see that he looks at everything most carefully. There's a page where you see how he scales things. He probably tends to do the things he has just been learning at school. He does it at the school over there, where things are arranged so that everyone follows his own line. We are economical. Both sides of the paper are used. Bracket to the boy. Close bracket. You'll permit me to draw you on the board? So that is what I needed of you. Bracket, this boy will be discussed later. Another child is brought in. Close bracket. What we'll do is to put the child here. See the enormous enlargement of the head with hydrocephalus. We'll discuss this later. It now has a circumference of 64 centimeters. When he came to us, it was 44 centimeters. It was 54 and a half centimeters on 25 February had grown to 56 centimeters by 7 April, and grown again between 7 and 11 April. It was 58 centimeters on the 19th of April, 61 centimeters on 18th of May, 64 centimeters by 1st of July. By the way, the child's body shows no abnormal development. It is just like with any other child. He reaches for things, has a very good appetite, and is really, except in a crisis, perfectly lively. You note the enormous size if you look at the little ears, which have their normal size, so that you see where the enlargement of the head begins. It starts here and continues on here. The face is not involved, a little bloated, but not involved. The child is such that if you look at him now, you may perhaps be feeling that he perceives things with his eyes, but that is only a very general impression of light not a precise impression of light. Tragically, I received a telegram just before I came here to say that his father has died of a heart attack. Looking at the child as a whole and comparing him with an embryo, you will see nothing but a giant embryo, and it is immediately evident that the child has remained at the embryonic stage, adhering to the laws of growth that pertain to it even at the most embryonic stage. So far we have not been able to get a reduction in size, and that is due to the fact that these things are extraordinarily powerful from inside. I still have real hope that we shall be able, once a particular point has been passed, to harmonize the head to a particular degree. Apart from this, he is a cheerful laddie. That is the way it is with human riddles. We see things in such anomalies that cast a deep light into the life not only of the human being, but of the whole world. Bracket. Parts of the case history are read out. Close bracket. The child was six months old when he came to us. 
He was born in August last year, and I gave him his name then, just at the time when I was in England. The birth was normal. During her pregnancy, the mother had always been well. I would ask you to take these things so that they can be interpreted later on, was feeling particularly well. Please take special note of this. She was doing a lot of typing at the time. The child showed nothing remarkable at birth. Remember, therefore, that at birth, immediately on leaving the embryonic state, the child showed nothing unusual, for the embryonic state was normal throughout. He started to show anomalies once he breathed with his lung. The umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. The amniotic fluid contained meconium. The infant weighed 2.6 kilograms. Fourteen days after he was born, he had seizures on one occasion. Please take note. These were signs that the eye organization and the astral body found it impossible to enter into the physical and ether bodies. He was waving his arms about and turned blue. Turning blue always signifies an inability to enter into the physical body. If it is severely so, it is taking a special form. It need not have been anything but that the astral body has a powerful configuration at birth, as in the case of Goethe, who was very blue at birth and was only later made to take in the astral body and eye organization. The seizure came at a later time. Development was perfectly normal for the first six months. Clearly it was not entirely normal, but the later disproportion between head and limbs went unnoticed. He was breastfed. The head was remarkably small at birth, which indicates that things must not be looked for so much in a weakness of the neurosensory organization. From September onward, the circumference of the head slowly began to increase. It had, of course, started earlier. His mother did not see it as abnormal at that time, when it must have been considerable. His mother did not consider it as abnormal until the child gained 350 grams in weight within a week on one occasion. In mid-December, the head circumference was 49 centimeters. The child was quiet and did not cry a lot. He was apathetic. The fontanelles were stretched tight. The appetite was good. Purulent pustules developed on the scalp. Appetite and stools were good. At that point the child was brought to us. It was necessary to consider the available information with direct observation, most important, including observation of the non-physical aspects, that is, to gain an insight into the spiritual, non-physical aspect. Now, this child has an astral body. His mother was here as well at the time, which very clearly, with enormous clarity, showed the traits of the mother's astral body. It is most uncommon for this to be so evident. We cannot say that the eye organization also showed these traits. That was not the case. The eye was simply still rudimentary, pointing to the kind of eye organization which children otherwise have in the sixth or seventh month of pregnancy. It had stayed at that level. It appears that the eye organization did not go along during the last months of the pregnancy, for the astral body is most powerfully developed. Thanks to the astral body, the child retained all the powers he had had during the embryonic period. Now you must remember that the orientation of the embryonic period 
essentially continues in the first months of post-embryonic development. That infants do indeed show great similarity to embryonic development in the first months after leaving the womb. This is because the radical change in the infant's bodily nature is initially in the respiratory system. The infant enters into a connection with the external air, but this must settle in slowly and will only involve the whole organism after some time. We know that it does involve it from the beginning, but it does only gradually involve the whole of the organism. With embryonic powers still active, one is not in those early months aware of the devastation that will later arise in the human organism, with infantilism going as far as we have before us in this radical case, where the infantilism goes so far that the embryonic organization is retained. As you know, the embryonic organization characteristically involves a mighty head organization and a small body. This mighty head organization is entirely the result of cosmic powers acting together. The initial developments of the head organization in the embryonic state are almost to their whole extent the work of cosmic powers. The uterus is the place where these developments are shielded from the earthly forces. You need to think of the uterus as an organ which encloses a space, not letting earthly influences come in, so that the space is left clear for cosmic influences. It is a space which is directly connected with the cosmos, where cosmic activities take place. There the development of the head organization proceeds. When the powers of the human womb receive the child, influence it, the organization of metabolism and limbs begins to let these powers give it orientation. And so you see that in this child the cosmic powers have remained also in the post-embryonic state. They keep the upper hand over the strength that should have been provided powers which children normally are given for their earthly development, for the development of the system of limbs and metabolism. The consequence of this is perfectly clear. If the child remained a longer time in the womb, an absurd hypothesis, if it were to stay there for more than ten months, the head would keep growing and the limbs would not be able to develop further. Opportunity is only given for extraterrestrial cosmic aspects to grow. We then had to ask ourselves, where did all this come from? And I have to say that it is very strange, really touching one deeply, that at the moment when we are now going to talk about the whole of this phenomenon, the telegram arrived to say that his father has died of a heart attack. The thought was, and the medical history confirms it, that we had to ask the mother, for example, quote, was there anything special in your inner life during the pregnancy? Close quote. The way I put it was that I said, quote, surely you were sad that the child did not stay in you but came into the world? Close quote. The mother agreed. She had based the whole of her connection on being thus together. And in her feelings, we can put it like this, that she regretted being unable to keep the child in her womb, that he was taken from her in the birthing process. 
This feeling points, on the one hand, to a quite extraordinarily powerful connection in the karmic sense. And on the other hand, this exactly provided the conditions under which the powers active during pregnancy remained with the child. As you can see, this is where the abnormal life of the soul started with the mother, and there being a deep karmic connection, of course, transferred itself to the child. It is a highly complex situation, and it is difficult to get an overview at all times. But in a sense like this, the facts will sometimes let us see the whole picture. You see, now a year has passed since the child was born, and the father dies of a heart attack. Such things are always connected. They are the kind of thing that does not arise from one day to the next. The father had suffered from a heart disease for some time. You only have to consider how much heart conditions relate to the influence on the human limbs and consider how the organization of the legs will immediately grow weak under the influence of certain heart conditions, how the important part of the limbs, the joint tissues and fluids, suffer if there is heart disease. We must not forget that it lies in the sphere of heredity, that the organization of limbs is influenced most by the father, the head organization by the mother. Think of conception, where, in given situations, an inability to take the powers of the paternal organization into the limbs is passed on to the child, and hence the mother takes the head organization to monstrous proportions. You now have the evident conclusion that the mother loved the child in her womb because this child did not inherit much of his father's powers, and the mother was able to be the main provider. Now, you see, with this we have a case before us. You merely need to know that exactly such a case provides the archetype for a whole series of children with anomalies. What you have seen in this child is just the most radical case of infantilism and goes back to the embryonic state. It takes all kinds of forms in childhood development. Here the embryonic state prevails over everything that is added later. After second dentition, the first period of life may be preponderant. Just as it is possible that a child does not grow into the post-embryonic state, so it may also happen that a child does not grow into the third period in life. Outwardly they achieve sexual maturity, but they do not grow into this period between sexual maturity in the early twenties with the whole of their human constitution, retaining the orientation of the powers that were active between the seventh and the fourteenth year. So we have a whole sequence of infantilisms. This is the most radical instance, and from the medical and educational point of view, it is a good thing that you have been able to see in this radical case what you may see in appropriately less acute forms and many children who need special care. So, today we'll prepare for coming tomorrow to treatment and pathology. I want to go through the individual cases now, talking about the educational aspects tomorrow. Bracket. Rudolf Steiner then discussed the boy who had been briefly presented at the beginning of the session. Close bracket. You saw the boy earlier, who really makes people think, why are we presenting him? That is how it is. And if you get to know him superficially, 
You'll hardly know him other than as a nice, obliging, pleasant boy you could talk to for hours. Isn't that the case? The people who are treating him will know this. You don't see anything abnormal in him and might perhaps say, quote, strange people, these anthroposophists. They send their children, who might well be good examples for other children, to be treated at the Center for Clinical Medicine, close quote. The boy is kleptomaniac to an incredible degree. This kleptomaniac trait is almost as if kept separate from the rest of his inner life. The boy has the peculiarity that the conscious mind, which I'd say should shine brightly on all phenomena of life that show themselves in a human being, has been totally switched off when it comes to kleptomaniac activities. One has the definite feeling that he does not know much about what he is doing there, although, please take note, he does it in the most ingenious way. He had to be proved guilty when he was at a school in Bern and at another school elsewhere. It took a lot of effort to prove his guilt. He is very clever in the way he sets about it. He is not selfish with it. He is capable of simply giving the things he has stolen ingeniously to his friends or guzzle them up in their company just to please them. This is what he is capable of. A special form of not wholly conscious lying develops in the process. Since he is not exactly sure about what is going on, the conscious mind does not shine out over the individual phenomena. He tells the most incredible stories about how he has acquired something which he has actually stolen. He'll even show, in a really crafty way, how he found the things, how they were there in those places, telling a long story of how something came to be in his possession. It really seems that goblins had a hand in it. If I have correctly understood what Dr. Wegmann has told me, people might think for a time that he has turned out pretty well. But one day one would realize, not knowing that he had taken something, that something had disappeared from one bag, something from another bag, and people discovered in a strange way that their things were gone. These two facts existed side by side. On the one hand, they had the strange business of things dematerializing at the Institute of Clinical Medicine, and they knew from before that the boy had been thrown out of every school. This they had known before. Here they had two facts side by side. It is certainly an uncomfortable thought when one is suddenly compelled to think that it might be adults. The Institute currently has a staff of 52, and you'll agree it might be these people or others. One simply does not know. All one knows is that a spiritualist would have occasion, plenty of it, to declare that things dematerialize. A complete theory could be developed about the dematerialization of objects. We have the boy here now, and I would ask you to note how much the head organization is compressed here at the temples and broadens out here toward the back. The spiritual findings are that the organ parts of the astral body are extraordinarily strongly developed, especially here on the left on this side. Apart from that, you won't see much on the outside. Please, be so good now as to bring in the other child. We'll consider the treatment tomorrow. The next child, a girl, is brought in. Look how nice Laura is. How splendid. Look at her lovely fair hair. This is the child where it was so interesting that the children were on their own for a short time one day. Sandro and Laura 
had become very close friends, and Sandro, whom we saw the day before yesterday, felt the need to fetch a pair of scissors. She induced him to get them. Sandro is a real, most obliging gentleman. He got the scissors, and she cut off her hair with these scissors. She's no Philistine. Note her lovely blue eyes. I especially recommend this. Note the fair hair with a lovely shine to it, and you will immediately be under the impression that the child is highly sulfurous, extraordinarily sulfurous also in her behavior. She's a good child, but she has a sulfurous element to her, is inwardly lively and also sturdy. Bracket, the girl bites him in the arm. Close bracket. She's just biting into the garment. The child weighed just under two kilograms at birth, but had gone to full term, had gone through the regular embryonic period. She was breastfed for seven months and learned to walk when one year old. That was relatively early, but not abnormally so. She also learned to talk at the right time. Development presented as normal. She no longer wetted her bed at eighteen months, still wets herself in the daytime today, but never at night. You see, we have the anomaly that the child's organization is weak in that direction, that this weak organization makes itself felt when the astral body is actively involved and not out of action. Eighteen months ago, when she was three and a half, take note of this, it was the midpoint of the seven-year period and most important, just as important as the corresponding time in the second period from the seventh to the fourteenth year, the child had a headache and a high temperature, followed immediately by measles. She had a disposition to be sick. From then on the child has been particularly excitable. Her mother was also sick at the time with influenza and has been excitable from then on. You see the parallelism between mother and child. The child always has a poor appetite, in spite of being so sturdy, with the organization of limbs strong in particular. As you know, the substance of the organization of limbs is not built from food, but from the cosmos, coming via respiration and the use of the senses. This poor appetite affects nutrition and has to come into its own in activities in the head. She is lively, imaginative, not just restive, but restive also in her thoughts. She provides clear evidence that the imagination does not come from the head, but from the limbs. The head organization is very weak. The organization of limbs is particularly strong. The rich imagination comes from the limbs. She sometimes has restless dreams. What it does not say here, though we must take note of it, is that we must really know how the child dreams, if she does so before waking up or after going to sleep. But she will also show us much that is most interesting if we gradually get her to tell us her dreams. It is the waking up dreams that will be extraordinarily interesting when called to mind again, and we must get her to tell them to us. These are the cases I wanted to present to you. We'll have a lecture at 8.30 tomorrow morning, and we'll then talk about the method of treatment. The end of Lecture 8